Welcome back to the Girl at the Game podcast, the sports podcast by women for everyone in partnership with Baseball Barbecue. As always, we are your hosts, Gabrielle, founder of Girl at the Game, and Al of Nesson, and we are joined today by a very dear friend of mine, someone I have looked up to for a long time, one of the best sports writers I have ever read, Steve Buckley of The Athletic is here. Buck, thank you so much for being our guest. This is absolutely my pleasure, and you know that, so thank you for having me. Of course. Let's just start off by talking about what you and I usually talk about, which is the Red Sox. What are your takeaways from this first week of baseball? What are you seeing from this two and four bottom of the barrel team? Well, I mean, not to stoop the cliche, because everything I'm about to say is what others have said. The difference being that I was saying it in spring training, uh, that I was appalled by the lack of starting pitching they were rolling out. And, uh, you know, obviously we knew once David Price was traded and with Porcello went to the Mets, you know, you lose like 60 starts right there. And then you lose Chris Sale for the season. And they they really didn't make an attempt to, to augment what they were losing. You know, they signed Perez from the Twins and, you know, Eduardo Rodriguez was coming back. But the bottom line is that they, they didn't seem terribly concerned about what they were putting out the starting pitching for 2020 which signaled to me, whatever they may say to the contrary, that they were looking upon this season as a reboot to sort of square the books and fight their battles another day. Yeah, we knew it was going to be bad going into the season, and we talked about this all winter long. But then when the pandemic hit and Sale got the Tommy John, it was like, all right, so it's even worse. Baseball finally figures out how to come back. And Eduardo Rodriguez has coronavirus and now has myocarditis. So I don't even know if they're going to see him this year. So this rotation that was already slated to be a total disaster is somehow even worse. I mean, these first couple games, though, we at least were hoping that the offense was going to kind of pick up some of the slack. We saw that in opening night. What are you seeing now in terms of Benintendi, Verdugo, Peraza, like these new guys, but also players who just don't seem to have it figured out? Well, I'm going to answer your question with the long view. I'm going to take like five steps backwards and look at all of baseball. And as somebody who came of age in in the late 60s and 1970s, I remember the uh, 1972 season started late and, you know, only a couple of weeks, but we had to prepare for surprises. Uh, More recently, the 95 season started late because they had the replacement players in spring training. And, and all that. And the Red Sox, who were not picked to be a contender in, in 95, end up winning the AL East. And Tim Wakefield, who had been released by the Pirates in spring training, winds up winning 16 games. So that's why I'm saying that if history's taught us anything, when you have a stoppage to reboot the season, or if the season starts or stops and starts again under unusual circumstances, you should be prepared for surprises. So taking that general view and taking five steps backwards, we're seeing some players struggling, some players are playing above what, what might expect of them, and we're seeing these surprises. So in that spirit, I'm not going to cast blame or you know point the finger at this guy or that guy because they're not playing well, nor am I going to pronounce Hall of Fame status on some guy who's putting up great numbers like Pilar, for instance. So we just need to understand that. And to, to be a bit more negative on this question it's also possible that there were players who just didn't stay in shape during this four months. And, and I can't prove that statistically. I can't say, oh, this guy is hitting 198. Therefore, he didn't do sit-ups in spring, you know, during the time off. It's, it's just players are accustomed to routine. I covered players back in the day. They would wear the same T-shirt every day because that was their winning T-shirt. And I'm not kidding when I say that. And the, the routine was obliterated. And now they're trying to refix things on the fly. So you should expect these kinds of things. Yeah, especially because not everybody during this pandemic had the ability to be keeping themselves in the best shape. I mean, a lot of players, they don't have these giant farms where they can just go out and throw baseballs into a field or their own personal batting cages. Like a lot of these guys just live in apartments somewhere and there's only so much you could do. So I definitely think this season whether they play all 60 games or not, it's kind of, you know, there, there's there got to be some kind of asterisk next to it. 
the number of games played will be an indication in and of itself. I don't think anyone's going to forget 2020 anytime soon. But do you think that the Red Sox will continue to travel now that the Marlins seem to have been a contained situation in terms of coronavirus? Do you think that there's going to even be a full 60 game season or even that they're going to play until August 31st? So the luxury tax resets? I think they will play. I don't know if every team will play 60 games, but they will play the equivalent of a 60 game. Obviously, games are going to be lost and perhaps not made up just because there isn't enough time or days in the calendar to make that possible. But yeah, I do think Red Sox will travel. I mean, I'm I'm speaking these words in the moment, and and as I'm speaking these words, a press release could be coming out saying, "No, we're canceling the season." So so who knows uh, if we've learned anything this season? It's to expect the unexpected. So. I, I hope I'm right, and I hope that no more players, uh, you know, test positive. I also hope that the players recognize the important place they have right now, not just in taking care of themselves, but a, a whole lot of people in the country are doing some stupid things right now. You see the pictures in the paper every day of crowded boats and beaches and whatnot, and people who aren't practicing social distancing. And I, I can't fathom why people are doing that. And, it, I mean, the President of the United States was down on masks and so suddenly decided he was up on masks. So you like to think that our elected leaders can, can pave the way for us and show leadership. And I think along those lines, I would hope that our professional athletes can do the same thing. I mean, the kid, they used to have athletes on the Wheaties boxes and, you know, you know, brush your teeth because that's what Ted Williams does and stuff like that. So, so borrowing a page from yesteryear, It'd be great if the players could could be our leaders here and be our role models and show us that, hey, it look, it sucks to have to be indoors and to, to not be with your peer group. Um, I, I can't fathom what it's like to be in your 20s and not be able to go out at night because I can tell you from experience, my 20s were pretty darn good. And if if these guys can't do that, it, it's got to be crushing. But they have to do it for three months and uh, get this season in. Yeah, I think that being said, one of my initial reactions to not just the Red Sox season, because we kind of anticipated what we were going to see with the pitching. Of course, the lineup should have been on paper. It's a lot better than it's been performing. But also, I feel like you're seeing like a lot of pitchers with really elite stuff that just aren't finding it right now. They don't have their command. Hitters can't really like control the strike zone. And um, do you think this is just like kinks were working out and that things will get better? Or do you think that because the lack of spring training and stuff that it's almost just like too far gone and they're too far behind and it's just how the season's going to be? Well, these are the best baseball players in the world or among the best anyway. And uh, you, you would think that natural talent merged with practice will equal the best they are. And I still believe that the, the, the wild card is, and uh, some we may notice it soon, is, is that some players just aren't into it, that they won't, I'm not going to say they're not going to try, but, but deep down in them, they can't pull that lever and elevate their game. And, uh, and you know, I mean, you, you see little things here or there. You know, Ben Attendee being picked off second on that play the other day. No, I don't think so. I think he's just root up. Uh, Peraza hits the ball off the wall, gets thrown up by 40 feet at second base. So I'll be looking for signs that, that players aren't hustling and are not caring. And um, if I see something that's noticeable, I'll write about it. Yeah, I like what you said about these guys just like being good role models. And to piggyback off that, I'm wondering what you thought about this whole Joe Kelly situation with um, the suspension, him kind of taking it upon himself to like, personally discipline the Astros and then getting a bigger suspension than anyone ever faced for this cheating scandal, aside from managers. Well, probably going to get myself in trouble with your Boston centric listeners, because I've been following Twitter and uh, I know there's a whole lot of way to go, Joe going on. Uh, But I thought it was really bad on multiple levels. Uh, Number one, the most obvious one being you don't throw at a guy's head, don't throw a guy. If you really want to quote unquote send out a message, you hit a guy in the ribs, you hit him in the ass, you hit him in the thigh, and, and that's how that gets done. So that's number one with a bullet right there. Then you get to, to number two, 
who who the hell is Joe Kelly to represent the Dodgers in gaining retribution against the Astros over something that happened a few years ago? He was not even a member of the team at the time. If the Dodgers right, he was with the Sox. He's not the right messenger. And C, or three, I forget how I rank these, uh, but number three, and this is a big deal to me, and I, I know the Red Sox quote-unquote cheating scandal wasn't anywhere near what it was with the Astros, but nonetheless, he was a member of the Red Sox in 2018 when they did some stuff, I'll put it that way, and I, I think that, you know, to borrow from the Bible, you know, let he is without sin cast the first stone. Well, he comes from a team that, that was guilty of sin back in 2018, and uh, he was just the wrong messenger at the wrong time. And and I'll throw one on, I'll pile on here by saying he pretty much waited until he got all the way to his dog up before he started acting that way. He could have stood in the mound and said, hey, I'm right here, come get me. So, so no, I, I, I wasn't a fan of that. I, I like Joe Kelly. He's a fun guy. We need more guys like him in baseball. So I hope he continues to be a character. But no, boo on him on this one. So, I mean, I think all rational people, which then again, we're talking about sports fans, so not always rational. But I think most people agree that throwing at players' heads is wrong. You know, like you said, beat him in the butt, hit him in the back, like throw some off speed, you know, whatever, have the guy take his base. That's like the unwritten rule of baseball. And we saw that with his 2018 brawl. Is it possible, having watched Joe Kelly for multiple years now, and knowing that he throws very hard, but his location is often absolute garbage. I mean, the pitch in question was on a 3-0 to Bregman. And I have watched Joe Kelly. There was a game last year. I was at an Angels-Dodgers game where the announcer said, Joe Kelly just had a three-strikeout inning. And I was laughing so hard because in between those strikeouts, he walked at least two batters, had multiple wild pitches, and gave up multiple runs. Is it at all possible that Joe Kelly was just having a night where he was peak Joe Kelly throwing 102 miles an hour, but nowhere near the strike zone? Right, just like yeah. how he threw into like his I mean, window it was a over, pitch. over the break <laughs> in that viral video of him in his backyard yeah. breaking his window. <laughs> well, um, yes, it's possible. But B, he certainly embraced the sin with all the stuff he did walking back to the dugout. So his nonverbal clues, if you will, would certainly make one wonder if he didn't do it on purpose. And, he, and if, if it was really, you know, a lot of times, guys, when one just gets away, the pitcher will just sort of put his hands out as if to say, hey, sorry about that, didn't mean it. All he did was just put one hand out as if to say, hey, whoa, whoa, sorry. He didn't, you know, he seemed to have been making out to borrow from Shakespeare. He was made of stern stuff. He wouldn't let that happen to him. He had to be the tough guy. And uh, and again, I, I, I feel a need to say, I, I'm not condemning Joe Kelly as a personality. Uh, it, right, of course. I've been, a, I've been saying for years, we need more guys like that. We need more... You know, I remember when I was coming to Red Sox, they, they had, you know, Mo Vaughn, and uh, obviously, if you go back before that, there was, you know, Louis Tiant, Pedro, guys, guys that had something to say, Kevin Millar, and they sold the game. And and not everybody's like that. Yastrzemski never said a word for 20 years, and he's an icon. He wasn't exactly a, a fun guy to be around. He was a very determined individual. So it, it, it runs both ways. But... Joe Kelly is is, an, is a personality, and we, meet, and we need more personalities in baseball. I've been saying that for a long time. It's just that I think he screwed up in this case. Yeah, I agree with you on that because when the story of the suspension broke and then the night prior when it actually happened, like, <clears throat> it seemed like everyone was actually talking about baseball. And like a pretty big NBA story broke about the Chinese basketball academies and developmental academies over there, like about how children were being abused there and stuff. But a few minutes later, the Joe Kelly suspension comes down and it's like, that's taking the shine of an NBA story. It's like, you don't really see that. So I agree with you that like characters like him are what the game needs and those personalities, the Red Sox certainly missed that fire. And, and I'll say something else about Joe Kelly. He did a, um, an interview when he came back to Boston last year with the Dodgers. And this is something I didn't know, but when he was with the Red Sox, he lived in Squanum, which is a little, I don't know if it's in Minnesota, 
so whatever you'd call it, off of Quincy, uh, down by Wallace Beach. And he was there for, with his wife and kids uh, for a couple of years. And he comes back to Boston, and he went back out to Squanum to visit old friends out there. And when he left Boston, there was the child of a family that one of his children got to know. <clears throat> and the child of that other family went with back to Los Angeles to, to hang out for a few days to sort of maintain that relationship. That's the kind of like cool neighborhoody type stuff that I was born and raised in Cambridge. So I mean, I'm a Boston guy. It, it pleases me when guys who come here embrace the city. Yeah, he, I mean, he definitely has a lot of fiery personality. We saw that in 2018. You have to take into consideration that this is the coronavirus era. And when the bench is emptied, you had players from both teams milling about at home. social distancing. And, you know, I hate to be prissy about this, but I, I thought we all agreed that's going to happen this season. And the reason it happened in that game, and it happened because of Joe Kelly. So I don't have a big problem with the length of the suspension. Yeah, I I understand why Dodgers fans are so frustrated because I think it just feels like insult added on top of multiple injury for them at this point. I would be absolutely furious. I, I agree in spirit with what you're saying, but but Joe Kelly was the wrong messenger. And I think Dodgers fans should be a little pissed off at Joe Kelly right now. I'm sorry. That, and I guess my viewpoint is the minority viewpoint because I read Twitter. But that's what I get paid to do and have opinions and not it's based on how other people feel. So, Yeah, of course. So before we turn this into the Joe Kelly Houston Astros podcast, um, I'd like to bring it back Thank a little you. bit. To the Sox, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, um <laughs> I mean, I might be already getting my, ahead of myself after what I've seen, but what do you think the Red Sox top priority will be this off season? I mean, obviously starting pitching is an issue, but with everything going on, like the manager and like, like even how they're going about like trades this season with the virus, like how do you really account for all these like normal baseball operations, things that happen throughout the season and then the off season with the virus and how, like, how do you navigate well, that? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and uh, it's it's one that I've been mulling myself. Now, the, the first question is, you know, will there be any sense of normal going into 2021? Are we going to have 36,000 people at opening day at Fenway next year, or will social distancing guidelines still be in place? So, uh, however the Red Sox build their roster for next year, it has to take into consideration uh, what roadblocks may be in place. Getting that out of the way, and getting the next obvious one out of the way, which is, of course, starting pitching. They have they have to replenish their starting pitching. Uh, as you pointed out, that's one of the obvious ones. But one of the ones that, that isn't getting a lot of attention now that will have to get attention is, uh, and you mentioned it, what, what will they do with the manager situation? Uh, does Alex Cora come back riding on his white horse and get a big ovation on opening day? Uh, will will Renicky return as manager in 2021? Uh, I, I don't have an I don't even know if I have an opinion on that yet because I, I'd kind of like to see how this shortened season plays out. We've only seen Renicky as manager for six games, and granted the Red Sox haven't looked good in those six games, but I have to answer it two ways. Number one, it, it's not Ron Renicky's fault that they have absolutely no starting pitching, so you give them a pass there. But as the days turn into weeks and the weeks turn into a two-month season assuming they play their games. If we keep seeing Peraza go to second on wall balls and Benetendi being picked up second, et cetera, et cetera, and Devers making errors, well, then it might not be unfair to say, well, you know, Renicki's job was to prepare this team emotionally, physically, and every other way for a season. So if, if the Red Sox begin to play a measure of crisp baseball, <clears throat> and then Renicki so gets fired, then I'm going to say, well, maybe that's not fair. If, if the Red Sox continue to play sloppy baseball and the season ends, then I'm going to say, well, Reineke had his shot and the Red Sox didn't go up tempo. So my, I guess my answer is I want to see how the season plays out first. Yeah. Ron is a guy I just kind of feel terrible for because he didn't really ask for this job. He kind of got thrown into it with the chorus suspension. And I feel like 
I mean, I, I feel like so far he's doing the best he can with, excuse my language, just the pile of shit he's been handed. But <laughs> wow. I, well, like- I mean, he got coronavirus baseball on top of an already depleted rotation. So, I mean, pile of shit's pretty accurate because, like, on top of the fact that the team wasn't supposed to be very good anyway. And Erod's like got a viral heart infection now, so I mean it's it's just not great. We may not be at the ballpark this year, but we're still celebrating baseball with the grill on in the backyard. If you like the smoke and flame of the grill as much as you love pitchers serving up high heat, Baseball Barbecue has the perfect customizable grill tools for fans. Their patented baseball bat handles replicate the actual wood bat dimensions to give Baseball Barbecue's tools the familiar feel of a well-made baseball bat. And the stainless steel grill tools bring more features than a five-tool player. For food prep, Baseball Barbecue offers handcrafted maple and walnut cutting boards made in partnership with U.S.-made bat maker McDougal & Sons Bat Company, as well as t-shirts and hats to show your passion for America's two great pastimes. Baseball Barbecue is offering listeners of Grill at the Game 15% off their entire order right now by entering the code GATG15 at checkout. So if you're outfitting your grill and kitchen or shopping gifts for the ultimate baseball fan, go to baseballbbq.com to pick up your baseball grill gear today. That's code GATG15 at checkout on baseballbbq.com. Sports keep coming back. So does your chance to bet on them with our exclusive wagering partner, betonline.ag. Major League Baseball finally started last weekend. And it's in full swing, and there's no shortage of ways to get in on the action. BetOnline has all the odds, features, and props for you to bet on. And as sports start their return, BetOnline has sat down with Eddie George from the NFL, seven-time NBA champ Robert Ory, and Harold Reynolds from Major League Baseball to get their opinions on what it'll be like playing without fans in what they have called Fandemic. Visit betonline.ag today to check out all the odds and up-to-date sports news. Don't forget to sign up and take advantage of all the welcome back to sports bonuses. BetOnline, your online wagering experts. And I don't think he really wanted to really be a manager again. I think he came in to be on Alex Cora's staff and kind of is like, okay, I'll take the reins this season. But that being said, um, do you think Cora should come back? Not like, not will he, but should he to the Red Sox? I think he should be given a chance to come back. Uh, I would like to see some measure of contrition. I know that he's made statements. I'm sorry this happened and that happened, but uh, I'd be interested once his suspension is up and he's basically a free agent and he can do whatever he wants. He can go back to ESPN. He could conceivably be hired by another club to be their manager. He could go into baseball ops. Or he could return for uh, 2021 as a Red Sox manager. And we know what's going to happen. If he's returned as manager, he's going to get a big rousing ovation uh, on opening day next year. And, And if that's how it plays out and he sufficiently addresses anybody's concerns that he recognizes that, that what he did was not a good look for baseball but if 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 once his suspension is up, he falls back to well, everybody was doing it, and, you know, it wasn't just me, and so forth. Um, then I'm not going to be thrilled with that. So, uh, but no, I I don't think what he did merits a uh, a lifetime ban. And you know, we 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 societally welcome back all kinds of people who've done all kinds of things wrong. And the way I look at things, if you and this is. You know, if you paid your debt to society, which is how we do look at it from the courtroom standpoint, and you're free to work, then you should be able to work. And, you know, players have had issues with uh, uh, problems at home, divorces, uh, fights in bars, OUIs, and so forth. And once they're adjudicated to be free, and we, we like to think societally, if, if people are free to work, they should be able to work as if every single person who committed a crime in the history of America couldn't find work. We'd be in a real pickle right now. So that that's the, um, the philosophical viewpoint that I take. And in that spirit, uh, if, if core is free to work, he should be able to work. Yeah. Especially cause he's a guy, I feel like, I don't know if you got the sense covering him, but like, I really appreciated how he was always pretty transparent and like really took accountability and to go off what you said, there's, 
uh, an Alex Rodriguez quote I really like, and he's probably the best example of this, but like the universe loves fives. If you're at a 10, they're going to bring you down to a five. But if you're at a zero, they want to build you back up to that five. So yeah, I totally agree with that. Yeah, and it was transparent. There were there were numerous occasions. There there was a there was a game, and I can't remember the specifics, but they had a lead. He should have subbed out in left field. Um, I forget the names, but somebody more deft on defense should have been playing left field and and wasn't, and a ball got hit, and blah blah blah. And when the game was over, before he was even asked, and when he sat down, I wasn't there. I was watching the Nesson post game show. But before he was even asked, he said, oh, by the way, I screwed this up. And I was like, wow, that, that that's really cool. And not every manager does that. Sometimes they go way out of their way uh, to defend a bad move or they'll just snap and snarl and, and so forth. Or to go back in the day, Jimmy Williams would, you know, we would ask Jimmy Williams and his manager, hey, why did you do this? And he would stand there with a straight face with his arms folded and say, oh, I was a manager's decision. Well, we know it was a manager's decision, but what would But it wasn't it? a good decision. <laughs> <laughs> no, he, and that was and I I love Jimmy. I miss him. He was he was he was a fun guy to be around, but he he had a cagey way of answering questions. I mean, on the one hand, I think Cora was really beloved here and the, he connected so well with his players and it really kind of felt like he was going to be here for the long haul. I mean, that was that was supposed to be the point was, you know, we found a young manager who connected with players. He's the anti-feral in that way. He communicates. He speaks Spanish. He's young enough that he actually played on the Red Sox with Dustin Pedroia. He was supposed to be the guy that kind of broke the trend of only having a Red Sox manager last a couple of years. But at the same time, if they bring him back, his new reputation will kind of follow him around here. And that's something that the Red Sox are going to have to consider. I mean, maybe they don't care and maybe they kind of lean into the Red Sox versus everybody. It's us against the world mentality of becoming a new villain. But personally for me, I mean, I really, I I wish that Cora hadn't done these things so that he would still be here. But since he did, I don't see how the Red Sox can, quote unquote, turn the page to use the phrase that they love to use. How do you turn the page if you go back to the chapter with the manager who was implicated in two cheating scandals in a span of three years? You can't move forward with him. So they have to decide, do we want to actually move forward or do we want to just middle finger to the rest of the league we're bringing him back and we don't care what you think call us cheaters whatever well i mean i'll answer the way the red sox would answer it uh i'm guessing if it comes to this what if i ran the red sox and it was six seven months from now in the dead of winter and i just hired alex Cora to be my new manager and people would say hey what up i would say he paid the penalty for his crime um, he's free to work. Uh, he's turned over a new leaf. And again, I'm, I'm giving you their talking points. He's not necessarily mine. Right. And uh, he's promised it will never happen again. And this is the key point here. And this one actually has validity to it. The good outweighs the bad. The bad being that he served out an entire season suspension. That's bad. The good is that, as you pointed out, he, he's a manager who, who uh, communicates well with players um, that, and, and by the way, when I covered him as a player and we always knew him as a, as a guy who understood the game well, he grew up in the game in Puerto Rico, his older brother, Joey was playing winter ball in Puerto Rico. And Alex was the little clubhouse kid and Alex's dad, uh, his late father was a broadcaster during winter league games. So he was what we used to call a rink rat. Uh, Alex Crow was hanging around ballparks from the time he could walk. And he has an inner sense of baseball that not everybody has. That makes him a valuable commodity. He also takes the winning and the losing extremely seriously. And um, if you go back, you can find it on YouTube when um, his Miami baseball team lost to LSU in a walk-off home run in the College World Series, you can see the video of Alex Corbett shortstop lying in the outfield grass with his head down for like five minutes. Uh, it was a it was a crushing blow. And he was, I think, only a sophomore or a junior on that team. But when the game was over, who was it that got all the players together in the locker room? I've written about this. 
who went got all the players in the locker room and and spoke uh did the players speech to try to rally everybody after that crushing loss it was Alex Cora so there are many many attributes that go into making him a really good major league manager and what the Red Sox will try to do is sell that sell that resume while acknowledging that he got caught up in the world of big league high stakes baseball and screwed up and and we're counting on him to fix what's broken and to stay on the path of righteousness moving forward that's what they will try to sell you and 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 most of that will be accurate i guess we'll see at this point i kind of feel like this year can't get any crazier but you never know it might be november might roll around and they might say ron renicky thank you so much uh, you can go back to coaching for us now, but we're bringing Cora back. He was truly a special manager. I mean, the city took to him immediately. So I think it's just yet another no way around it sucky situation that the Red Sox find themselves in now. I hope we get to a point, whether it's Alex Cora or not, that the arguments we have are baseball related and not political, not off the field, not coronavirus, that it's just like, like what you talked about being stubborn and who bats lead off and who bats second. I hope that those are the things that we're screaming at each other about next year. Yeah, me too. <laughs> I'm, glad I, I'm glad I let you go first because perfect segue. You've been doing this a while. How does it feel to be writing about sports right now during arguably, I mean, certainly in my career, but arguably the weirdest time in the last century? Yeah, it, it's very sobering. Uh, I have been doing this. In fact, tomorrow, well, no, Saturday will be 42 years I began my career, uh, 42 years, August 1st, 1978, with the Westfield Evening News. And I, I was just telling somebody the other day, the very first thing I ever covered was uh, I was out in Westfield, Mass., and a couple of towns over, and you're from Ludlow, you know where Holyoke is. And they used to have a double-A team there. The Milwaukee Brewers' double-A team was the Holyoke Millers. And the general manager of the Brewers was Harry Dalton, who was from West Springfield. And they had Harry Dalton night at McKenzie Field over in um, Holyoke. I'm 22 years old, six weeks out of UMass, and I had to go interview Harry Dalton. And I was shaking, like, like he even said to me, hey, settle down, slow down, everything's good. Because I was interviewing this powerful baseball executive just out of college. But the point I'm making is that for all these years, the interviews I've done have largely been done in person, where you and you develop interviewing skills. And there I was, a little puppy back in '78, and you know now you get into a thing. You just waltz into the clubhouse, talk to whoever you want, and if they tell you to screw off, then okay, that's fine. You know, we'll fight that battle another day. Um, so you do, you do develop interpersonal skills and interviewing skills and so forth uh, that you need years and years to refine and whatever skills I have, and critics would say I have no skills, but be that as it may, whatever skills I have acquired over the years, uh, they've been put to use. And now I'm interviewing people over the phone, email, text message, Zoom conferences, and so forth. And it's certainly not as fun. And I don't think that in many cases I've been able to yield, but there are times of these sessions have ended and I said, geez, I, I wish I could have asked this, or I wish I could have asked that. Like one of the old tricks you get when you when you talk to athletes in, in what we call a scrum is, you know, there's 30 guys talking to one guy, and everyone, one one guy finally nods and say, okay, thanks, and we all dissipate. And I would immediately turn right back and go, hey, let me ask you one more question, because for that one one quick question, I get the guy alone, and I will ask my question which might be a little different than somebody else's. And the answer might be really good. And I've got an entirely different angle to write about as opposed to what everyone else is writing. And that's something I couldn't have done earlier in my career because I would have been too afraid to do that. But you get a certain comfort level as you get older and you just ask the questions you want to ask. So all of that's off the table now. And uh, it's a different way of doing things. And frankly, it's not as good. It's funny you say that. That's my exact strategy. It's that I won't even, I'll sit on the fringe of the scrum. And when it dissipates, I'll run up and be like, I'm so sorry. I needed another quote. I'm sorry if this was asked already, but, and then I'll just totally rock, like 
rob everyone of a one-on-one. So, but I love that you brought up Mackenzie Field and one of your first assignments because as an internet mass live, my first ever front page story for the Springfield Republican was a feature I did on, cause they still play at Mackenzie Field. Um, the, there's a Holyoke team out there, a collegiate team. Um, and it was a feature on a player there. So I'm what we're both UMass grads. We both got our starts out in Western Mass. Uh, do you remember the first story you ever wrote? Um, yeah, the, the first piece I wrote was I was newly minted at the Western Evening News, and they had a, an amateur soccer league out in Western Mass. I don't know if they still have it. Okay. With the Ted Smith League or something like that. And um, there was, you know, soccer, as you know, is much bigger in Western Mass than it is in Eastern Mass. And, um, and Western led a team in the Ted Smith Soccer League, and, and I covered one of the games and interviewed a few players. And, you know, it's not exactly the World Series or Watergate, but it was amateur amateur summertime soccer in Western Mass. And uh, that was, I think, the first piece that I wrote that was in the paper. Love that. Oh, yeah. Uh, I don't know if it, that's still the league, but the men's summer league out here, it, to everyone else in the world, it doesn't matter. But to these guys who play in it, who are maybe washed up out of college in their careers now, like still hanging on to that, it means everything. I can't tell you how many games I went to growing up at Lusitano Stadium in Ludlow, where like the cops are called because things are, are getting too uh, too testy. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, just to, just to, to continue that point, I covered a lot of high school soccer in Western Mass in the fall of 1978. Now, we are 42 years removed from that. But on the, on the West Springfield team, which was really good that year, and um, the uh, I, I can still remember players on both the girls and boys teams. The, the goalie was a kid named Dana Kirk, who was just about the best goalie in Western Mass. And the top girls player was Sharon Daggett, and she was the sister of Tim Daggett, the gymnast. And I covered his high school gymnastics meets. But Tim Daggett was a sophomore at West Springfield High, and he went on to win the um, uh, gold medal in the Olympics in Los Angeles in 1984. Um, I also covered Danny Trant, the late Danny Trant, who was a basketball star at Westfield High. He was one of the best basketball players uh, in Western Mass. He went on to play on championship teams at Clark University in Worcester, and then he sadly died at the World Trade Center in 9-11. And I've written about him since then. But but my point being that you go back to 1978, I can name a hundred kids that, that I wrote about, Danny Tran, Todd Marcioniak, and um, uh, with the Bob Broderick at Gateway Regional High School, and I could just go on and on. So the fact that I can remember these things after all these years illustrates, A, that I have a great memory, but, but B, that, that those first shiny weeks as a sports writer, for me, were very exciting times and very memorable. Well, and to go off that, I feel the same way. Um, I didn't cover high school sports for too long, just a a little under two years. But I feel like that experience was so pivotal in my development as a reporter, because I mean, I feel like it can kind of be looked down upon covering high school sports because everyone wants the big glamorous pro and college sports assignments. But you're in the trenches, like you're taking your own stats, you're, you're grinding for your own interviews. And every student I talk to that's looking to break into this in- industry, I cannot recommend covering high school sports enough. And it means so I, much. Just, you know what I mean? It means just, so much. Just as a, uh, I still laugh at this to this day. Now, you mentioned you had to keep your own stats. Well, obviously, if you're covering a Patriots game or a Red Sox game, you, it, the stats are delivered to you by by associates or they're online and you, you don't have to yeah. worry about whether it was a gain of six or a gain of five but yeah you're not in the Berkshires in the, I've been in the Berkshires yeah. in a snowstorm where you can't even see the lines on the fields and I'm walking with the chains and you do that you can do yeah. anything well the joke was that if you had in those days there was so many of those small newspapers and uh and I remember I I up when I was up in, I went to Maine later on. I was at the Journal Tribune in Bitterford, then the Portland Press Herald. But if there was a big high school football game in Maine, you might have the Portland Press Herald, the Journal Tribune, the Lewiston, uh, the Lewiston Sun, 
the Brunswick Times, where you might have like five, six small papers covering one game. And then you pick up all the papers the next day. And Claude LeClaire was the big running back from Bitterford High. I would say Claude LeClaire uh, carried the ball 14 times, 121 yards, as Bitterford beat Westport, blah, blah, blah. And then the Portland Press Herald says Claude LeClaire carried the ball 22 times for 116 yards. And the Lewiston Sun says he carried the ball 18 times, 130 yards, because there's all these high school reporters walking up and down the field with little scratch pads or, or, or um, clipboards trying to take down the stats. And as you point, it's raining, it's snowing, uh, you know, that the, the kid goes out of bounds and you know, runs into you and you drop your notebook and, and you're at home later on trying to get the coach on the phone to get the stats. He doesn't call you back. Uh, and and keeping high school stats when you're on your own was was a real tough assignment. And I used to laugh at the fact that everybody had different numbers. Yeah, that's still the case. So, Buck, I want to ask you a little bit about one of the most, at least to me, one of the most important stories that you ever wrote. What was it like to write an article coming out in 2011 to write something about yourself, not about sports, but obviously being a sports writer? What was it like to write that and put that out into the world? It was a big deal at the time. And uh, it was uh, 2011, so it's going on 10 years now. And uh, it, it was—I mean, everyone knew I was gay. It was—I was not—I was—I was not publicly out, but I wasn't really closeted. It just to make a big, big deal about it. So yeah, it, it was a big deal at the time, and we all talked about it. But it, it's been so long now to me that it, it hardly ever comes up anymore. And what, what I will say about the the Red Sox, the Bruins, the Celtics, and the Patriots, the teams that I'm around a lot, uh, to, to the, to their enormous credit, not once in, not once in, in the nearly 10 years since I've come out has it been an issue. And I've obviously had my fights with players over the years and because it's the nature of what a columnist does or something I've written or said on TV or radio, whatever. And not once has a player even suggested uh anything that would be homophobic not not even close in fact just the opposite um i've had players pull me aside and ask me questions you know or or told me about a member of their family or friend or something uh that was great david ortiz uh pulled me aside one day and we talked for half an hour david ortiz had a childhood friend uh who he knew was gay and he asked his mother about it and his mother and David adored his late mother, and his mother told him, he says, God makes people in different ways for different reasons and so forth. And um, so he got big rough and tumble David Ortiz as as a t- preteen in, in, in uh, the Dominican, uh, grew up with a certain sense of what it was like to have an open lifestyle, if that's the term you want to use. So, no, it's been it's been it's been great. It's been um it, it it hasn't helped my career. It hasn't hurt my career. I think my career has just hummed along the way it would have otherwise, which is the way I would have wanted it. Do you think that the sports world has become a more accepting place when it comes to, to use the term that you use, people having different lifestyles or people just being different? It's changed to the degree when somebody says something bad, they get and uh, apologies must be given and, and retribution, blah, blah, blah. Um, so it's changed in that respect. Where it hasn't changed is, is that we, we still are not seeing openly gay athletes in the four major sports. And obviously Jason Collins w- was a pioneer a few years back when he came out uh, as an active major league athlete. He was nearing the end of his tenure in the NBA with the Brooklyn Nets and decided to come out. So he was the first active athlete of the four major team sports. He was the first one to do so. Um, we've had minor league players come out. We've had lots of players come out after their careers ended, notably Billy Bean, um, who played for the Detroit Tigers and Dodgers. And um, who's a friend of mine, I, I talk to him occasionally about, the, he works in the commissioner's office now, and he's been a, he's been a great sounding board with the different teams and uh, you know do 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 players occasionally say things that that are unsavory yes of course and uh but i don't think as much as happened in the past if you go to outsports.com sid ziegler who does a tremendous job 
of writing stories about amateur athletes, college athletes, high school athletes who have come out in, in all the different sports, male and female. And I think those stories are important because it shows us, I think each closeted amateur athlete who reads one of those stories can be bullied by the fact, oh, it's not just me. There were lots of other athletes out there. And uh, that's why I think Sid does important work. And also my buddy Alex Reamer, who's without sports now, has done some great stuff with them. Yeah, I, I think especially with social media, athletes have more of a an ability to kind of show who they are. And obviously not everyone is going to be accepting of that, but people definitely have more of a voice than they did even when you wrote your article uh, almost 10 years ago. Before we let you go, I want to talk about the old time game for a minute, <laughs> just because you organize this game every year, basically, I think since I was a baby. And just talk about the old time game, what it's going to be like to not have one this summer. I mean, it's my favorite event of the whole season. And it always just, it's such a special night. You mentioned there might be a possibility of doing it later in the year. How are you feeling about just not having it be kind of our summer classic this year? Well, it's crushing uh, that we're not having it in the fashion that we've had it. It uh, The game began in 1994, almost by accident. I won't go through the whole thing, but I was on the radio one day and baseball was on strike. And I said, hey, why don't we just have a pickup game? And next thing you know, we had like 400 people show up at St. Peter's Field and we had what we called the old time baseball game. And it wasn't supposed to be an annual thing. Uh, a guy named Bill Novelline, um sent us some money and said, here's my donation to whatever charity you want if you do a second game, which we did. And then by 98, um, a, a company called Technical Personnel Services donated the money to buy the old style flannel uniforms. And it, it kind of went off from there. You've got, you know, we get close to 2,000 people on a warm summer night at this tiny ballpark in Cambridge. All the players are, you know, mostly college players in these brilliant, colorful, old-time flannel uniforms playing modern baseball. We, we don't play like 1890s rules. It's a, it's a real game with helmets and the whole bit. And um, and it grew to the point where we started getting former players uh, from the major leagues. Noticeably, uh, you know, last year we had Roger Clemens on his own, came in to play in the game. I think I just emailed with Roger yesterday, and I can show you the email. He brought up the fact, can't believe it was a year ago. I had so much fun. Uh, a couple of years before, we had Pedro Martinez pitch a couple of innings. That was my year. first one, Pedro. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. yeah, and that was and that was the biggest night we had because it was just because it was an ALS fundraiser with John Martin, our buddy from Nessa, who has since passed away. Um, oh, I love John Martin. John, he was one of my first yeah. friends I made at Nessa. I rest in peace. What that man? Yeah. And uh, and I, I often kid Pedro, and I, I say, Pedro, more people came to see John Martin that night than came to see you. And and John was John was a wonderfully cynical, snarky guy, and opinion oh, about everything. And that's why best type of jackass. <laughs> I loved him so much. <laughs> and 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 I can I my hand of God, I would walk into a room, and if John Martin was there, I in my head I would say, Oh, John Martin's here. And and you, you would gravitate to him and you'd yes. say something to him and he would say something back and hilarity would ensue. And uh, I remember um, it was just about two years ago when when his ALS was in its you know in the home stretch if you will. I was going to go over and watch a baseball with him at his house and it was I remember there was the Washington Nationals. It was early July 2018 and um, I texted him and I said, uh, "Can I bring anything?" And he texted me back, and I still have the text on my phone. And he says, and he says, if you pass a place that's up, that's got sangria in the window, grab some, baby, and, <laughs> which I did. And uh, we went, we watched the Nationals uh, Red Sox game, and uh, uh, he he is greatly missed in the Boston media, sports media, and uh, it was he he managed the home team that night, and. We were going to put him in an old Red Sox uniform. And he said, no, can you get me an Angels uniform? And I said, Angels? I remember we were sitting in a Starbucks over in Newton Center because we we would meet once a week to go over the planning for the game. And I said, so just so you know, John, we're going to put you in an old-style old Red Sox uniform because we figure that's what you want. He said, no, can you get me an Angels uniform? 
And it turned out that for years and years and years, he coached in the South End Little League. And he coached the South End Angels. And he wanted to have, so we got an Angels uniform from the Pacific Coast League in the 1950s. And he wore that uniform that night. And uh, so we've kind of set in stone a policy that moving forward, we will always invite a player who had played in the South End Little League to, to represent John in our game and wear that uniform. I love that. I did not even know that. I actually kind of was wondering why he wasn't wearing a Red Sox uniform at the time. So even though I was there, now I learned something new. But you mentioned Roger Clemens, and it was actually one of the things I was going to ask you because you just wrote about John McNamara passing away earlier this week, and people are talking about the 1986 World Series again. And we had Clemens at the game last year, and I spent a a good enough amount of time with him, but I was never going to dare to ask him about the 1986 World Series because you just don't step in that. McNamara's wife is coming out very strong. I don't know if you read Shaughnessy's piece this week. Oh, I did. I wrote about it today in The Athletic, yes. What's your take on this whole back and forth about Clemens in Game 6? When I heard that John McNamara died yesterday, I began writing a column on it. And then Dan heard from John McNamara's widow, and his column came out. So, And it was great for Dan. I, I linked to his column in my column. That's not often done. But I had also, on my own, I had reached out to Roger Clemens. And I said, Roger, I, I know this is an uncomfortable situation, but I have to ask, you know, about game six. And it, it was it was a tough spot for Roger because he's defending himself at a time when his former manager has just died. But John McNamara's widow said, hey, that's all on Roger. Roger asked out. So Roger, I, I thought very delicately said that, look, my pitching coach was Bill Fisher, and Bill Fisher came out later on and said Roger did not ask out of the game. And all Roger did was reference the late Bill Fisher. And Bill Fisher did say that years later, that, um, that look, talk to Bill Fisher, or not talk to him, but Bill Fisher said this, and this is what I'm going on. And, and then in, in the next graph in the email he sent to me, he said, you know, my condolences to John McNamara and his family. So it, it's unfortunate that, that at a time when John McNamara has just passed away that we have to revisit game six from a controversial standpoint. So I cited all that. If you go to The Athletic and read my column, I cite all that. But I also point out that, that John McNamara, he spent five years of his career five years in Lewiston, friggin' Idaho, as a player and as a manager, as a, as a catcher in the minor leagues and then as the team's manager in the Northwest League. He he paid his dues for years and years and years. He managed in in Mobile, Alabama, in Birmingham, Alabama, and um, Dallas before it had big league baseball, and Fresno, California. And he finally got a chance as a coach with the Oakland A's in 1968, and then they made him manager. So he certainly paid his dues and wound up 19 seasons as a manager. And as I write in the column in The Athletic, I hope that the McNamara family today and tomorrow and forever can, can celebrate the totality of John McNamara's career and, and, and not be allowed to um, wallow, if that's the right word for it, in game six. And I talked with Tony LaRussa a Hall of Fame manager who played for John McNamara in the minors and said that a, a lot of what he learned as a manager, he learned from uh, John McNamara. But he also, Tony LaRusso said this. He says, I don't think he ever got over game six. When he retired as a manager, he stopped coming around. He didn't come to events. And and again, these are Tony LaRusso's words. I think he was really stung by game six in 1986. Yeah. One of the people who usually comes to the old time game with me is Dr. Charles Steinberg. And one of his favorite stories that he's ever told me is how he really felt like Johnny Pesky had been haunted for a long time by 1946, but that when they won in 2004, he was with Pesky in St. Louis. And he said that he watched years of torment just kind of melt away. He said that he looked like a completely different person. And I would hope that at least for Red Sox fans after the last two decades, you know, 1986 was really painful for people like my parents and my grandparents. But I would hope that since then we've kind of found our way to 
be a little bit more at peace with it, considering it was such a long time ago. And they, I mean, unlike the Mets, they've, they've won since then multiple times. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's a great point. I was, I was there that night in St. Louis in 2004 and I wrote about Johnny Pesky and I, I saw him crying and yep. one player after the next kept bringing up the, the uh, world series, the commissioner's trophy to, to give to Johnny and Johnny kept kissing it and so forth. And for those fans who don't know, there was the 1946 world series game six and, um, Eno Slaughter's mad dash. He came around the score and a single to left by Harry Walker. And there's always this thing that Pesky held the ball. Yeah. Didn't really hold the ball. He dropped his shoulder and turned. Um, people forget that it was a hit and run play that, that Slaughter never stopped. Um, there was a backup center fielder in the game uh, because Dom DiMaggio had gone out with, I think, an ankle injury earlier in the game. So um, the fact that this got turned into Pesky held the ball would make the uninitiated believe that Pesky stood there with the ball in his hand as Slaughter was running around just the watch, bases. Just watching completely, it happen, which isn't true. Yeah, which is completely untrue. And uh, Pesky, you know, he, he was bothered by it, but he also had some fun with it. He used to always tell this banquet story, that, and which may or may not have ever happened. But the story goes that, you know, he was from Oregon, and he was back home to Portland, Oregon, when the season was over in 1946. And he went to the annual Oregon-Oregon State football game and it was, of course, a driving rainstorm, and the field was all muddy, and and the and the player and Pesky was there with his friends in the stands, and the players kept fumbling the ball because it was so wet and muddy that day. And finally, somebody yelled out, "Give the ball to Pesky; he'll hold on to it." And um, now, did did that actually ever happen? I don't know, but I do know that Johnny got a lot of mileage out of it at banquets over the years. <laughs> Steve, I'm so impressed. Like I, like you said you've been at this for a while and your memory of all the stuff you've covered, it's just so impressive, but uh, it's encyclopedic, (laughs) right. Before we wrap this up, I want to put you on the spot. Uh, We ask all our guests that come on, what is your favorite sports memory of all time? It can be a game you watched, covered, were a part of anything. Well, I'm going to give you one of the obvious ones, which is, uh, I, I I think the Red Sox winning in '04 was was something that nobody else had ever seen, and I, I I say this not as a fan but as a student of history, because I got to stand there, and uh, a lot of times in the ninth inning of a clinching game, everybody leaves the press box, so we can all go downstairs and get into the clubhouse and the interview rooms and all that. What struck me was as I stood there in the ninth inning at Bush Stadium that night, uh, Bob Ryan, who was then at the Globe, was right next to me. And Joel Sherman from the New York Post was in front of me. And then I looked around and I said, nobody's leaving. And I looked at Bob and, and I said, Bob, I'm, I want to see this. And, and we were in the extended press box. And it so happened that our vantage point was directly over first base. And so, you know, ground ball back to Falcon through to first. It was like right below us. Um, and then I guess number two would be the Malcolm Butler interception. And again, I was, it was right below me in the press box. And it, that because, I mean, they had won Super Bowls before, but that one was so absolutely shocking yeah. that there'd be such a turn of, turn of events in a game like that, that that one stays with me. And if I may, I'll give you one more, and this is very esoteric, but I had just been hired by the Portland Press-Herald in 1981, and I covered the New England Babe Ruth Finals at Goodall Park in Sanford, Maine, and a kid from Portland, Maine, named Mark Powers, uh, against Cranston, Rhode Island, pitched a perfect game, a seven-inning perfect game, 21 up, 21 down. And the game story I wrote, they put on the front page of the Portland Press-Herald, and the editor of the paper liked it so much that the next spring, they elevated me to cover the college team, University of Maine, they went to the College World Series, so I went. To, I got to go to Omaha two years in a row, and then when Maine got a Triple A ball club, the Maine guys, I covered them for three days, three years, and then of course I went to Seattle to cover the big leagues, and you know here I am. And I, I often joke that if Mark Powers had given up a hit in the seventh inning, I'd still be covering high schools up in Maine. So um, who knows? But I, in all seriousness, I I, I have met several of those players. I, in fact, I met. Uh, I reunited with Mark Powers a couple years ago. His son, who pitched at Southern New Hampshire, uh, was invited to play in the old-time baseball game because guess what? 
he threw a perfect game at Southern New Hampshire. So I invited Mark Powers, his son, to be in our game, and then Mark came down, and I saw him for the first time in nearly 40 years, and we had a great time. And uh, uh, so I always have to put the 1981 Portland game on, on my radar. Love that. And since you originally started with 2004, I think you'll appreciate the fact that when we had Keith Folk on the podcast and we asked him this same question, his favorite sports memory, Al and I were pretty sure that he was going to say 04. And his favorite sports memory was hockey in the Olympics. It might have just been him being a contrarian. He admitted that he might have just been saying that so that, you know, we wouldn't say what everyone was expecting. But I think for a lot of people, 2004 is just, I mean, there's never been anything like it. I can back up Keith Folk to the degree that he's a huge hockey fan. It, it, he he would occasionally show yep. up wearing hockey sweaters. So, so I know that his hockey credentials are in place. The only reason I wouldn't mention 1980 on my list is because, because I have been covering games for so many years that, that being there is, is, is different. And you get a different sense and a different feel and different intangibles come into play. Whereas in 1980, when the Team USA beat the Russians, the Soviets, um, I watched that game on tape delay, not knowing the outcome, uh, on, a, on a little TV set in my apartment in Sanford, Maine, at the age of 23. And, uh, and, and I was as excited as anybody could be. And uh, I've interviewed you know, all those players. I, I did a big piece for The Athletic on the 40th anniversary, and I interviewed Aruzioni, Silk, O'Callaghan, and Jim Craig. And just two weeks ago, I talked to Dave Silk. I did a story for The Athletic comparing the coronavirus shortened season with what was going on in 1918 with the, um, the, the flu influenza epidemic. And um, to tie it all together, Dave Silk's grandfather, Hal Janbrick, I think his name was, who played on the 1915 World Series Boston Red Sox. That was Dave Silk's grandfather. Um, he got the influenza and was hospitalized for five weeks. He had been traded to the Washington Senators for 1919, but he, he was five weeks late getting into the season because he was recovering from the influenza. So so I meander here, but 1980 was, was huge as a sports fan for me, but I don't put it on my list because I wasn't physically at Lake Placid that day. I was going to say, people do like to make fun of you on Twitter for saying that you were at <laughs> every single I mean Al I don't know if you know this but Buck will write something about 1918 and somebody else in Boston sports media will write back and be like yeah and you were there in your horse and buggy <laughs> Buck will be like yes I oh, yeah. I see all the Twitter banter <laughs> well so what um, I do is when sometimes they don't even involve me like somebody somebody like Jeff Passett from ESPN will tweet out that's the first time that's happened since the Boston Red Sox in 1946 and and then someone will tweet, oh, ask at Buck in Boston, he was there. <laughs> so I always fire back. I'll always come back with, no, I was covering the Boston Braves that year. No, I was covering James Michael Crowley at City Hall. I, I, what I do is I look up the I – have, I have a lot of fun with this. I look up the year that they're referencing, if, whether it's 1918, 1922. I just go – I'll just Google 1922. Or 1920, and I and I said, oh, that's the year that Charles Lindbergh flew, you know, flew to Paris. And uh, someone would say, oh, did you cover the 1927 Yankees? He says, no, I was I was in Paris covering the Lindbergh flight. So I just have a lot of fun with it, and I think other people do too. And uh, uh, you, you can't, hey, I've been around forever. You can't hide that fact. And uh, so so rather than hide from it, I embrace it. It's one of my favorite things that I go on Twitter and see. But before we let you go, what we've been doing is we let our guests pick our song that we play at the end of the episode. So, for example, last week, Tom Karen picked Bad to the Bone because it was Dennis Eckersley's like entrance song when he would come in to close a game in Oakland. So you get to pick our song today. Oh, my God. Uh... I know. It's even harder than the sports memory one, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, well, let me think. Uh, hold on. Um, the Very Thought of You by Billie Holiday. Oh, I love it. I love Billie Holiday. Yeah. Okay, perfect. That's one of my favorite songs. Yes. All right. So, Buck, thank you so much for being our guest. And, guys, you can read Buck's writing on The Athletic. You can follow him on Twitter at Buck in Boston. He will give you both all the historical feels and great laughs. 
Buck, thank you so much. And I really hope that at some point soon we will be able to have that old time game 2020 in some exactly. way. Take Buck, care, guys. Thank you so much. Such a treat to have Buck on. Guys, don't forget you can follow us on Twitter and Instagram too at Girl at the Game. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share with your friends. Buy us a cup of coffee on ko-fi.com slash girl at the game. And we will talk to you next week. See you guys. Yeah.